0: Dr. Samantha Boardman is the author of Everyday Vitality, Turning Stress into Strength. She received her BA from Harvard University, an MD from Cornell University Medical College, and completed a four-year residency program in psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. After graduating from residency, she continued working at the hospital as the in-house psychiatrist for the Employment Assistance Program and also opened a private practice in Manhattan. She later went back to school and got a master's degree in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. She has published papers in journals, including Translational Neuroscience, Nature Reviews Neuroscience, the American Journal of Psychiatry, and the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. She's also a frequent contributor to Psychology Today, the Wall Street Journal, and Thrive Global, and a guest on the Today Show and Good Day New York. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to be here. Thank you. Oh, well, I really enjoyed your book and I think it is so useful. The combination of your own personal experience, the tips you give. I feel like you were speaking to me, you know, like a a very busy mom, woman, Where like you're speaking to everybody who needs a little bit of help, just like making their lives a little bit better. So I feel like it's, it was just, it was great. And it's actionable advice and all the rest. Anyway, why don't you tell listeners sort of what your book's about and, and what inspired you to write this? Well,
2: just thank you again for having me on. I think you make everyone's life a little bit better who who listens to your podcast. So thank you. Well, no, I was inspired to write the book. It's taken me a while to do it. The the quarantine helped me finish it because I, it's sort of been in the works for about four and a half years, but I really wanted to write about vitality. And so this all started a long time ago when I was fired by a patient I had been seeing for a couple of weeks. And I thought we were making great progress. We were talking about all of her problems and trying to kind of minimize and sort of dial down what was going wrong with her and in her life. And one day she came into my office and said to me, you know what? I hate coming to see you. All we do is talk about the stuff that's going, you know, it's all going wrong and we never talk about anything else. And that's it I'm done and I never saw her again and you know she'd been like, overwhelmed with her husband she had 3 kids under the age of 8 like there was just a lot going on like many balls in the air and I think many people can relate to that and you know she said I dread coming here even sometimes I'm having a good day and I'm like oh what can I complain about there and it really made me rethink everything I thought I knew about medicine and psychiatry because you know in in medical school you're taught to you know, you percuss lungs, you auscultate abdomens, you're always like, you palpate prostates, like you're looking like, what could be going wrong here? And then in psychiatry residency, you're basically doing the same thing. You're looking at a set of symptoms thinking, okay, what's wrong now in this person's brain? And how can I, you know, what can I do to minimize their misery, to treat their symptoms and like kind of bring them back to baseline. And what I realized was I was just so focused on, Pathology and what was, you know, disease, and I wasn't really focusing at all on health. And, you know, I, I think the practice of psychiatry actually really is the the focus on disease. So, I thought I needed to expand my horizons. I ended up going back to school at the age of forty, getting a degree in positive psychology, studying resilience, post traumatic growth, optimism, this the opposite of everything I had learned in medical school, and then incorporating it into my practice. So, I think of myself as a positive psychiatrist. So long way to answer it. That's how this book was born out of, of, of
0: that. Wow. I know. I couldn't believe when you, that you went back to school with kids and everything, and you're already a doctor. It's like, that's just amazing to even make that life choice. And it sort of dovetails with all the suggestions you make for other people, right? Of how to live a happy life. And by doing that, you are somehow finding the skills to then use put those things in action for yourself, which is great.
2: Well, it was definitely embodied. Like I really felt like I had to kind of embody all of this. Otherwise I wouldn't, you know, I really do try to practice what I preach because sometimes I realize I can be a bit of a grump and I, or I can, you know, let things get in the way. And so I really tried to kind of bring that and even like my own vulnerability into the practice of it.
0: Well, you talk in the beginning, you say they are the. This- there are three main wellsprings of everyday vitality, meaningfully connecting with others, engaging in experiences that challenge you and contributing to something beyond yourself, which is sort of like, like people talk about like, what's the secret of life? Like, how do you become happy? Like, how do you achieve happiness? There's so many different theories. And this makes so much sense to me. And then later you said almost half of the people surveyed said they frequently experience daily stress and more than 40% said they feel as if they don't have enough time. Their lives are nonstop with a to-do list that seems bottomless. Often a lack of vitality only amplifies their stress. Patients often just give up and sigh, I guess that's life. And then you say, ironically, how people respond to daily stress is often the opposite of what would give them strength. Choices like canceling plans with friends, eating comfort food, staying up late watching television, and skipping the gym to offer te- offer temporary relief, but further deplete vitality. Okay, one more little thing. I believe, and you said, I believe that vitality is cultivated and enhanced through productive and meaningful actions, having a good conversation, doing a favor for someone, going for a walk, reading an interesting article, and then calling a friend to discuss it. These commonplace experiences and micro moments are the building blocks of everyday resilience. They are other oriented, they are outward oriented, they are action oriented. They are not internal nor individual, nor do they require sustained self immersion. On the contrary, they require engagement and interaction. I love that. Like, that is just so awesome.
2: (laughs) You know, I was sort
0: of like putting your lens on happiness and, you know, vitality onto like what I do, for instance. Right. So like I changed my, my entire life up and now this is what I do. I try to explain to people like every day I have these like amazing conversations. It's unbelievable. Like everybody should have a podcast. Like it's just, I get so much out of it. And people say, aren't you like exhausted? You'd like doing four podcasts today. I'm like, no, it's like this, dose of, of energy I get from each one. So I felt like, and you even have a whole thing on communication and anyway, I'm rambling, but anyway, talk to me about all of that.
2: <laughs> no, I love that. And I do think what you do every day is truly vitalizing, you know, and I think it is in those, those connections. We often talk about, you know, mental health and, and health in general, it's like the eating and well and, and moving and sleeping well and all that. And those are all critically important, but also like the lifeblood of well being is our connections with others, and it's sort of neglected. It's sort of, even I know, like I have many people who tell me and I do this too, unless I'm deliberate about it. If I've got a to-do list, like the personal connections will probably be the thing that sort of drops to the bottom of it. By the end of the day, I just don't really have the energy. And so really being deliberate about kind of expanding yourself in some way. And I think there's so much pressure even in therapy and in today's world to feel like, okay, I have to dig into myself. I have to self-immerse. I have to wallow in my emotions. I've got to eat, pray, love my way into well being. And that maybe I need to go away for uh, you know a month or I need to do something that's super like self-absorbed. And actually that can steal vitality, you know? And I think when we, when we're, we become so self-immersed and so self-focused that we lose those connections and we prioritize oneself. And, you know, people always say like, oh, you have to always put on your, you know, life jacket, life preserver before you put on someone else's. And yes it you know 30,000 feet but actually like you can do both and and i think that we've got this like either or mindset and i would kind of want to shift back to that because it's the most vitalizing thing if we do the best like you know antidote for stress is actually doing something for someone else and it's really empowering i love this study for it it was for i think it was 6th and 7th graders they asked the 7th graders to give advice to 6th graders about how to like their best study habits and then other sixth graders were given advice from teachers, other ones from parents. And you'd think, obviously, the teachers and parents have better advice. I always think I've got better, you know, great advice <laughs> to my kids. But the amazing thing was the kids, the seventh graders who are giving the advice to the younger kids, their study habits improved as well as the sixth graders' study habits improved. So sixth graders were actually more receptive to a, like a peer from a student telling them what to do, but also when you do the act of giving advice and sort of, you know, using your experience to help somebody else is so motivating. And that's where motivation comes from is I think when we feel like we're effective in this world and, and, you know, there are studies looking at that with weight loss, with, with saving money. And and so I think when motivation is something that we often tap out of, but actually others are a wellspring of motivation too and we're doing something for someone else it's so
0: true and you I feel like you give such specific suggestions that make it like okay well this isn't so hard I can do this like for instance with exercise how you say you know you're you say when you're exploring exercise options for yourself like invite a friend who's had a recent loss to go for a walk or send a teenager off to college with a yoga mat or offer to be a gym buddy to a friend going through a divorce watch a friend's baby so she can do an online workout right it's like being' it's it's this whole theory of being of service to somebody else, right? And that it just like doubles down on your own, on it's like that when the more selfless you are, it actually benefits you more. It's kind of, right? Totally like other help is self-help,
2: you know, and I think self-help can become so narrow. And and so I think actually other help, and I kind of think of this book in a way as an other help book, too. And it really it helps it helps you in every way. And I think, you know when we're overwhelmed at the end of the day, it's like the last thing you feel like doing. And so sometimes the only way to get yourself to do that is I I read about it. Like you can't be a flake. Like I go for a walk kind of every Friday with a friend of mine in central park and, we always do it, and I can't tell you every Friday morning I'll be like, "Oh, I don't really want to do it." And if I call PK up and will I and I, can't, I bail on her, will you know, will she be upset? And I'm sort of guilted into do it, and then I'm so happy I went. You know, you always, you never regret those like actions that you take, and we have a great time, and we have fun in the park, and we walk around for an hour, and I then I look forward to it right afterwards, and then like Thursday night I'm like, "Oh, how can I how can I get out of this?"
0: What do you think that is? I do that all the time, where I'm always like. <laughs> I don't like. I feel like I want to cancel every plan I make. I'm always like, "Oh, why are we doing this?" Or why? What? You know, why did I accept this? Or we don't have to stay long. Or you know, my husband's always like, it's like, why don't you ever go to a party without saying like, we only we don't have to stay that long?" You know, I I feel like all this anxiety about it, and then I always have the best time. It's like I I don't know. Totally, I I, I totally agree with you. And it is like
2: Groundhog Day. You're like, oh, you're like back to that place again. Like, why are we doing this? And I do think, though, maybe emerging, uh, maybe it's too soon to say emerging from the pandemic, but at least, you know, as we kind of re-enter our social lives, we have this opportunity to socialize better and be kind of maybe a little pickier about who we connect with and how we connect. Because research shows that, like, the two main, like, social connections that really boost us are having meaningful conversations. And you need to kind of be, like, six six people is the limit for that. It's so, like, dinner with, like, six friends, absolutely, like, a huge cocktail party maybe not, you know, or any other, the the second thing in addition to meaningful conversations is the experience, like feeling like loved and supported and understood in some way. So that's kind of this experience of felt love, like just, you know, when you have a conversation with, you know, your spouse or your, your kids, it's just saying like, tell me more. I'd like to hear more about that and giving them your full attention, not having your phone with you, or even doing things beyond their awareness. Like when you, you know, they've got to drive somewhere the next day and you fill the car up with gas, like those little things that just kind of provide these little gestures of support. And, you know, you don't need to be sending chocolates or flowers. Like there are these little things I think in our everyday lives that we're not really paying attention to. And we're not deliberate about just because life gets
0: in the way. And But when we do pay attention, it's so easy and it feels really good. My husband, Kyle, when I first like got together with him, every, everyone we would meet or he would see or whatever, a waitress or someone in the elevator, like just anyone he would be like, oh, you know, great shirt or whatever. I love this or I love that. And I'm like, why are you always talking to all these strangers? And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, I might've just, that might've made their day. That might've been the only time someone said something nice to them all day long. And I was, you know, wh- why not? And it, cause at first I was like, is he really this nice? Like, come on, people aren't <laughs> nice like this in New York city, but, but he, he was totally genuine. And now I find myself doing the same thing, like all the time, like not in any sort of calculating way, but just noticing, first of all, it's just the noticing the good things about other people. Like, I feel like before I was so in my own head, I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, well, wow, amazing shoes. Or I wouldn't say amazing shoes. And now that's like the first thing out of my mouth. <laughs> Anyway, I think it's all like this, you know, but when you're, when you're in such a down place, it's so hard to do any of that or to see any of that and to like sort of claw your way out. So I feel like once you, once you get the ball rolling, it's, it's, it's easier to keep it going. Right. Obviously physics and all that.
2: And it, but it's amazing though, actually how you talk about your husband doing that and the, the contagion effect. Like he basically, you've caught that, you know, that, 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 that noticing. And really we are bandwidth of attention. Like we're, I think our, our brains are just kind of primed to look for like bad stuff or to like focus on ourselves and to like sort of turn inward and tunnel vision and be little turtles. But you know, when you are around somebody who's a little bit more expansive and looks around, it kind of forces you to, and then you're probably much more like that around your kids now and around other people. And there is you know, there's a lot of research. Maybe he, he's read. Maybe he's a psychologist. I don't know. But there's so much research around like incidental interactions like with those strangers. And one of the things about COVID too, I remember missing so much was like the guy who walks his dog on the street. I, you know, I don't I don't know his last name. You know, I wasn't doing Zoom cocktails with him. But like those, those interactions that are really meaningful and I think really important with people. And so even when you're picking up your coffee in the morning to like look up from your phone, how are you? Thank you. You know, and people who do that actually do go on to have a better day. So I think there are a lot of opportunities that we might miss if we're just sort of you know
0: stuck in our own heads. So true. I had this one experience. I don't even know why I bring this up, but I went into the Tasty Delight on Third Avenue, and the woman behind the counter was like being just so rude to everybody. Like, and mm-hmm. I, my my first instinct was to like get annoyed, right, and like just sort of like put my hackles up in response to her sort of being rude. And as I watched her kind of like serve the people in front of me, I was like. I wonder what's going on with her. Like maybe something's wrong. Maybe why would she be doing this? And so when it was my turn, I was like, I said something like, I'm sorry, it looks like you're having a really bad day or something like that. Or I'm sorry. You know, something like that. Anyway, she like burst into tears and she was like, yes, I'm having the worst day. And like, oh my gosh. And I was like, it's okay. (laughs) I don't know. I just, but anyway, all to say you can, it's very easy to help people out with just a comment just one thing just to pay attention. And then it improves your vitality so much. So I don't know. I just am so, I'm so on board with your whole concept and spreading the the joy that you can find, especially because you just so nailed it with the people, you know, being so tired and, you know, all of that and comfort eating. And yes, I mean, not to say I don't do that. I do all of that stuff, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So we all yes. So what? Tell me a little about writing this book. And I know you said it was a long process, and that story had happened before you, and you even had this meeting with like Angela Duckworth in the middle of it, talking about her book and all of that. Oh my gosh! So tell me about turning this into a story, and what that act, what that was like for you.
2: Honestly. And, and now like i look looking <laughs> back, I'm like, Oh my gosh, how did I do that? It took me a really long time. And I was so broken down by it. And you know, there's that old saying, like everyone has a book in them and that's for most of them, that's where it should stay. And I was like, okay, <laughs> then I've really got to like, if I am going to do this, I have to do it well. And I want it to be fun and and I can be a little nerdy in my writing. So I was including maybe too many studies at moments and being a little bit, I've, I've written some textbook stuff and realizing that maybe people didn't want to read that and a friend of mine Nell Scabel, I was working with her and she was editing things piece by piece and being like you know what maybe why don't you put a like a story in here and so it was really fun actually the collaboration being able to work with Nell and she's funny and so it actually ended up being a fun process and when you do something with someone else and you get that immediate feedback as well and You know, we were just talking about junk food, too. I think that, you know, there are all these studies looking at, like, when you eat a piece of chocolate, like, if you are going to eat junk food or chocolate, like, do it with someone else because it tastes better then, you know? And I think that that is true. Like, if, like, one person's distracted, like, food just doesn't taste as good. So I think whatever you do that's a shared experience is really valuable. And every time we are sort of distracted or stuck in our own heads, we're sort of actively unsharing a potentially uplifting experience, too. Interesting.
0: What about your patients? Like, do do any of them see themselves in here? Are you concerned about that? Like, do you you open up in treatment with them the way you do in the book? Or is this like a whole new side of you they're going to hear about? Like, how do you feel about that? You know, I I think what I really
2: learned in like it, 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 Pen when I did the positive psychology program was also, I think there'd been this like weird wall between in psychiatry, between like anything your, your patients knows about you and like, you know, they're just projecting whatever they are into you. And I think there was some value in that, but also I think there's value in being a human being as well. And so, you know, one of the most interesting sort of observations too, was when, you know, you hit the, when I was pregnant and, you know, do you tell your patient, do you not tell your patient? Like there's all these different theories about what one should say. And like, you know, that, you could be like nine months pregnant, and your patient doesn't even notice. You know, like there's like, some, like denial thing there, and, and because there are certain things that they are going to know about you in some way. But you know, I had permission for the the stories that I told about them, and so I would never in any way, you know, we've got HIPAA rules and things like that, that to violate anyone's privacy. But I actually felt that even telling those stories was a way to their experiences could help others too, and I think that that was a way for them to sort of you know, share what had gone on in in their own lives and changing many, many, many details. But I think there's an act of generosity
0: in what they were doing as well. So true. So how do you make sure, aside from, you know, writing this book and using your work to help inform your, the people on your blog and your patients and all of that, or how do you get your like sort of vitality kick? Like what are some of your things? Truly, like I have to be really deliberate about it
2: because otherwise I feel like a tumbleweed in the daytime because I can Sort of, I, I do have my sort of turtle, might be like my my like turtle pathology that I will just retreat in some way and just sort of fold into myself. So I have to be deliberate. I have to be in nature at some point, being in the park or even in concrete nature, just walking on the streets in the city. I have to sit down properly to eat something and not eat on the go. Like my husband is German, and he would be like, "When's breakfast? When's lunch? When's dinner?" You know. And I come from like a Waspier background. I'm like, we drink. You know, like we like using <laughs> cheese and crackers with like vodka but he's really into like, you know, proper meals. I've never missed a meal since I've met him because he's so deliberate. It's like there's, you know, I think Europeans have a certain different like joy in eating. They grow up differently and that there's not that like on the go mindset. Like he doesn't understand a to-go cup. Like it just is so <laughs> unfathomable to him. Um, but he's come around to it now, but, but so I, I really am kind of, I, I do try to be deliberate about, food. I try to be super deliberate about how I sleep. And more and more though, really about connections. I mean, I think that kind of reaching out to friends, having a phone call, like sometimes even I found with patients too, like Zoom is a bit much. People don't like looking at themselves. Like actually like the old fashioned phone call could be so good. I think that's like a sort of deeper way to connect. Sometimes there's people not seeing you too. Like they don't have to reveal their space wherever they are. So it's just helpful too. Those are wellsprings of vitality and learning something and reading books. I love to read and there's been nothing better than reading during this period. And I talk a lot in the book about when you're like in a weird moment, you're having a hard time and you feel like you're going to sort of tumble down that sort of into that spiral is, you know, we're told all the time these days to like be yourself. And I sometimes think that's not the best advice. And I will advise my patients. And also I take this personally too, is be on you Like what would be the on you thing to do in this moment? And you can't like, to kind of make that concrete, who's somebody you admire? Like what would they do in this moment? And I think sometimes even, you know, there are characters in literature that we have so much to learn from. You learn so much by immersing yourself in the life of another in, in a good book. And there is just this sort of, Distance you can take from whatever the you know heat of your own emotions are, and you're like, huh, what would this person do in that moment? And I I think that fiction is a wonderful like wellspring of vitality.
0: I love that you brought that up. I meant to say something about that because my mom's advice to me not to you know throw her under the bus here, but when I was growing up and I was so shy and all that, she would always tell me before i went to like an event you know just be yourself and i was like that's like first of all it's impossible second of all, who who even am i like what does that even mean and then i just would like have that in my in my head and you have this Chekhov quote when you said we see those well, this is sort of social comparison. Well, maybe I'll read that later. Sorry, that quote comes later. But anyway, <laughs> you said pretending to be someone else can promote flexibility in the midst of anxiety. So when you suggest like being Barbara Walters or Oprah or whoever it is that you pick, like that's the thing that can get you through as long as they have something, some skill that you're trying to emulate, right? So I loved that. And, you know, I had I had been sort of, that's in my head, that advice from my mom all the time because I'm always like, will I ever be able to just be me, you know? <laughs>
2: And again, it like assumes that there is some like kernel like of truth, some true you. And I think that's also denying the fact that we're all constantly changing, we're works in progress, hopefully bending in the direction of goodness and being intentional about it. But the idea that there is some true you is just such a flawed way of thinking about it in this sort of fixed self that you know is 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 not allowing us to evolve. And I think it's even in our relationships to like sort of allow the other person to evolve as well and know that they're going to be changing. And, you know, I think that people sometimes say like, if you're in a relationship, if you're having a hard time in your relationship, like, don't worry, you know, she or he is going to be a little different three months from now, you know, like we're all changing, maybe hopefully in the best direction. I think that's where we need to be a little bit intentional about it.
0: That's like with kids. I mean, it's like, you know, they can be completely different (laughs) people one year to the next with different age spans and times of development, it's, it's really nuts. So yeah, you have to be always ready to adapt and sort of everything. Yeah. And this idea of like, oh, you've got to be authentic. Like,
2: what does that really mean? You know, like, so I think the, the idea that you're being authentic and just like sort of being yourself or expressing your emotions, which is you know, to a point maybe helpful, but one of those, you know, those moments, I think that you can get closer to the better version of yourself
0: by channeling, you know, somebody you really admire. And then just one, the final piece of advice that I, took away. And I've always like had this interest in social comparison theory, but you wrote from Chekhov's quote, we see those who go to the market to buy food, who eat in the daytime and sleep at night, who prattle away, marry, grow old, but we neither hear nor see those who suffer and the terrible things in life are played out behind the scenes. And I know you apply this to sort of Instagram life and thinking everybody is living this like perfect life except for you. And that just is to- totally depressing, but how can we sort of use social comparison for good? Well, you know, that that quote was in
2: this wonderful study called people are more miserable than you think. (laughs) It's not particularly uplifting, but actually, you know, social comparison, you know, can get us like, it can optimize us in some way too. You'd be like, wow, like that, you know, kid runs a mile faster than I do. I can sort of boost that. And even, you know, I think having somebody to compete against rather than in a vacuum can be really helpful and kind of bring out the best in you and, and kind of help you really shine. So, but I think with social media, it's a lot harder when you're really seeing, you know, it, it's not just you against like that other kid in your class, it's you against kind of the world. And it takes apparently like 17 seconds for a young woman to feel badly about herself after like leaping through Instagram. So as long as she knows, as she's looking at it, that this is not real life. Like this is a, you know, highlight reel of something really good. Like you almost have to go in knowing that it's choreographed, that it's manufactured. and to remind yourself that like they're kind of like little miss perfect lives maybe aren't so perfect and you know they talk call it duck syndrome from stanford like we always see other like people like cruising along looking like they're having no trouble at all and we never see like their legs beneath the surface like paddling like crazy like a duck would but i think when we when we're, we let other people be human. And I think Angela Duckworth was really human with me and even our heroes be more human, like Simone Biles, you know, somebody who's held to such a high standard of perfection. And people are so obsessed with like being perfect today and perfect in their social lives and perfect in the world they present and perfect in their achievements. I think it's a real, it's an act of generosity when you see people sort of pull back the curtain and show you kind of warts and all that, Hey, it's really hard. It's true.
0: So are you are you reading anything amazing or have you read anything great this summer? I'm
2: reading The Midnight Library right now that mm. I'm really enjoying. That, that's been fantastic. I just finished Wild Game that was so unputdownable. Yes. Oh my goodness. And I'm not like a good cook and it made me want to cook after that. <laughs> but that, that, that was also an extraordinary book. And also she talks so much about how books changed her life and kind of gave her a just boost in an outlet and an exit from a life to rewrite the narrative. I really believe that people change and it's not something that I really learned, I think in medical school or in residency. And even you were saying, you know, you were shy when you were younger and you're clearly not so shy now, that people do change and that that, that book was a wonderful sort of message of that. Wow.
0: I loved Adrienne Broder. I was just actually emailing with her this morning. You wrote Wild Games. It's so funny. Yeah. Wow. Oh my yeah. God, I love that book. Yeah. She's awesome. Okay. Last question. What advice would you have for aspiring authors? Oh my goodness. Like you can do it and it's going to be
2: really, really, really hard. If you can carve out at least an hour a day just to work on some part of it, just to fire something out. So you feel like you are making like a little dent in the, in the, in some progress, but I think it's really, really hard, but you can do it. And I had a really lovely friend, Angela Duckworth, who sent me her, and I assume she's like had this like seamless process because it fired out this amazing book. And it turned out it was really, really hard for her too. And it was really nice to have a friend kind of role model share her experience. And it made it seem like a little bit less painful and actually a
0: little more fun. Excellent. Well, I mean, if you're going to learn about grit, you might as well learn <laughs> I oh my gosh <laughs> wow amazing well Samantha thanks for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books thank thanks you. for giving everybody your dose of everyday vitality and I know that this book will really benefit a lot of people and that's amazing so I just hope more everybody grabs a copy and, and starts changing their lives thank you thank you so much have a great day <laughs> you too bye okay bye thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books